as organizations right now are, are dealing with massive levels of stress, massive levels of change, what we're finding is uh, one of the greatest competitive advantage in the modern economy is a positive and engaged brain, which requires being able to perceive the meaning involved in the work that we're doing. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that research was provided by Sean Aker, viral TEDx speaker, positive psychologist, and the CEO of GoodThink, who claims that the largest competitive advantage for companies right now are happy workers. So in today's episode, Aker shares his definition of happiness, how to overcome depression, and what is holding you back from your potential. So put a smile on your face and make the world a better place with the real Sean Aker. Enjoy. With that being said, folks, we will go live in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is positive psychologist, Sean Anker. Sean, welcome to my happy place. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course, so Sean, you're a positive psychologist. What exactly does that entail and how did you get involved? Um, well, I fell backwards into it. Um, so I was studying at Harvard Divinity School. I was studying Christian and Buddhist ethics. I grew up in Waco, Texas. I'd seen mostly Christianity, wanted to expose and study something else. So I got fascinated by how do your beliefs about the world change the way you act in it? So that's what I was looking at. And some people in the psychology department said, we want to ask those same questions. We just want to do it with a scientific lens. Could we measure if somebody can become more compassionate? Or can they become happier? Or what happens when the brain becomes more optimistic? And I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> Happiness is a mystery. And uh, they said, we're using the same metrics we use to study depression. We're just looking at the other side of the curve. We're looking at why somebody could actually improve their life, not just how do we move people from a depressed or disordered state back up to normal. And I got hooked because if we could study individuals that are thriving, we could learn something great. So positive psychology is this movement in psychology that instead of studying only depression disorder, it looks at these outliers, these weirdos in the data that are positive and figures out why they're so positive, what they're doing, and what we can learn to move the entire average up. So Sean, what are some of those metrics that you would be measuring in someone who's clinically depressed? So um, there's, if you want to look at all of them, you can go actually to University of Pennsylvania has a fantastic website. If you just Google University of Pennsylvania and positive psychology, it'll take you right to their website. And it has a list of all the positive psychology metrics uh, that we use that are, that are free. You can actually test yourself. You can log into their system and look to see how you score on measures of optimism or resilience or social connection. Um, basically, what we did was we tried to create a series of questions that when we asked a certain, you know, a large enough sample of people that when we put those answers together, it was actually predictive not only of, you know, one number, like we could say, well, this is your op optimism number, but if that doesn't correlate with anything, it's useless. But if we found a number for optimism that then correlated with higher levels of longevity or higher levels of resilience for a Marine or increased business outcomes for a leader, then we have something that we can actually use because then we could see are people moving up and down and can people change? Sean, how long have you been doing this for? Gosh, um, 
the Divinity School was in 2002, and uh, but I really started getting into positive psychology when my mentor, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar at Harvard, pulled me into it. Um, positive psychology started in 1998. I left Harvard in 2008 to start bringing this research out to the world because I felt like it's one thing to study happiness in a laboratory on college freshmen mm. <laughs> that were grading <laughs> um, and determine what creates happiness there. What I got fascinated by is um, the banking crisis and the economic crisis was occurring in 2008. So I saw all this um, need for this positive psychology, and we'd been researching it for years. That's when I made the move to start bringing this out to companies and, and to schools. And, and, and now I've traveled to 50 countries sharing this research, so more than 12 years now. Interesting. So what would you do or how would you help a company uh, that's going through a hard time if you were to go and speak to them to maybe boost the morale? Like how would one perform an exercise for that? It's different for different organizations, right? Some want to have me in for just a talk, right? So for an hour at a sales conference, I'll share some of this positive psychology information. Um, When we go for deeper dives into organizations, which is where we actually do the research, usually we're doing a one or two day positive psychology intervention where we expose people to the idea that their actions and um, their daily work routines could change the levels of happiness. So we show them, here's some habits and work routines we've studied that raise your long-term levels of happiness. Then we show how those correlate with their own key performance indicators there. And we do this as teams. So they're not doing this alone. They're doing it with one another. So I know a lot of people don't have time to read a whole book you know, on positive psychology. So I wrote a little parable actually uh, years ago, um, 10 years ago, um, about this frog um, that's green, but has these orange spots. Um, so it's called the orange frog. And the, but the whole point of it was he hated being orange because it made him different. But then he started realizing as he did these certain actions, he became more orange, which made him more different from everyone, all the other frogs. But then he started realizing it was contagious and advantageous. And then he starts to change these other ponds. And when this flood comes, they work together to build their houses up in the tree. So they're you know, tree frogs. So what we used was this little narrative uh, to encapsulate what we've been learning on the science of positive psychology, to give language inside organizations to these very simple concepts, but to become something that we could actually sustain over time. So on on that point, we actually, I I had a Harvard Business Review article published in in May of this year uh, on uh, looking at what, we we went to a hospital system for four years um, before COVID began. And we looked to see, we knew they were gonna go through massive cost reduction, staff reduction, so a really difficult time. And their question was, how do we start talking about happiness, right? (laughs) Where I have to let people go Let's wait till this is over, then we'll start talking about happiness, right? And it's what we could feel like right now, right? As soon as all these changes with the pandemic or political or economic landscape are over, then let's start talking about happiness. What we did was we just tested. We compared departments that continued on trying to go through the challenge like they were. And then the other ones, we exposed, we used the orange frog intervention, but basically a positive psychology intervention given license to uh, their leaders to start talking about the positive and creating work routines. And what we saw was the groups and uh, the departments, same hospital system that started talking about the positive, their burnout rates dropped in half, likelihood of expressing optimism rose by 20%, happiness scores rose, stress levels dropped, patient safety improved to top 1%. By the time we got to the entire organization, oh, by the way, the departments that hadn't went the opposite direction. They, their burnout actually increased, right? Their stress levels increased. So same challenge in the world, right, that they were dealing with, but being exposed to positive psychology completely created a bifurcation 
in terms of whether or not those teams thrived or they didn't. And by the time we got to the whole hospital system, not only are they profitable for the, uh, for the first time, but they have top 1% patient safety. And in June of this year, they were, um, they, they were rated as the top 15 hospital systems in the nation. So I think to answer your question, what we're finding is we can provide this information, but if you do it at a team level or organization level, you actually start to see uh, a, a massive scale change that not only impacted their outcomes, like their, uh, their business outcomes, but their well-being and then their, their patients' well-being as well. So, Sean, if there's a correlation between happiness and profitability, how do I, as a leader of an organization, spread uh, a contagious happiness uh, to, you know, throughout my company? I love this question because I think it's so important and it's the core of real leaders, right? That this idea that we actually have to see meaning in our work and help lead other people to that because it actually not only is important because of the meaning, but it impacts our, impacts our success rate as well. Um, we found that when the brain is positive, you're 31% more productive than your own brain at negative neutral stress. In the middle of the banking crisis, I wanted to work with UBS. Um, we looked at their stress management programs. We, were, we noticed that they were trying to fight stress all the time. Instead, what we got them to do is in the middle of that challenge, as they were trying to help people through the economic crisis, we got them to acknowledge the stress, but then reconnect to the meaning involved in the work that they were doing. So same level of stress. When we measure them six weeks later, their stress levels didn't drop, still high levels of stress, but perceiving the meaning, uh, the negative health outcomes dropped by 23%. So that's lower job effectiveness, burnout, uh, headaches, backaches dropped by 23% for the same level of stress. So as organizations right now are, are dealing with massive levels of stress, massive levels of change, what we're finding is uh, one of the greatest competitive advantage in the modern economy is a positive and engaged brain, which requires being able to perceive the meaning involved in the work that we're doing. We even found, this is Martin Seligman's work who started positive psychology. He found that at MetLife amongst one of the insurance sales um, uh, companies, that amongst the insurance sales force, that the top 10% of optimists were outselling the other 90% Hmm. by another 89%. Um, so they hire people that are low on the industry standard test, right? Uh, but high levels of optimism. I've never gotten somebody to do this. Only Dr. Seligman could get somebody to do this. And they didn't tell people they were part of that, that study because it'd be a very awkward conversation. You're not that smart, but you're really happy you're hired. Right. By year one, they outsold the normal hires by 26%. By year two, is 57%. When we go to work with large organizations, we find if we can move their sales force from the neutral sales force, neutral on average, to the top quartile on levels of optimism, their sales rise cross industry by 37%. When the brain is positive, it releases more resources to deal with challenges. Dopamine turns on all the learning centers in the brain. It allows us to actually have greater levels of um, productivity and energy levels and longevity. So what we're finding is happiness is this incredible advantage in people's lives that sometimes requires either creating positive habits, and we could talk about those if you're interested, or, or perceiving the meaning involved in the work you were already doing. I want to focus on the meaning, Sean, really quick. And I think I mentioned to you before the show, we're interviewing like social enterprises, um, organizations that are intentionally trying to solve a social or environmental problem. What we're finding is a lot of these employees are you know, attracted to these companies because they share that same values or that same purpose, which they can find meaning in, which increases their engagement, increases their positivity. What is the difference for you from working with maybe a social enterprise with a social mission versus what you mentioned with like a UPS banker or someone insurance and insurance? And how do those compare in terms of happiness, I guess? 
So interesting. I spoke at a large bank, not UBS, as a different example. Um, and I came in to speak and the guy who introduced me said, well, we're going to talk about happiness for uh, an hour because um, we and we're going to talk about it outside of work because let's be honest, we're not saving the dolphins here. And you could see the whole room deflate, right? Because he basically said, what you're doing isn't meaning meaningful, right? Um, I think it's easier for some uh, organizations to be able to see meaning involved with the work that they're doing. The easier you see meaning, we find it's a, it's a buffer against resilience, when we, uh, buffer against uh, depression, it's a buffer against burnout. Um, but I think one thing that's crucial, and we've seen this with some of the health organizations we've been working with that serve you know, um, low-income communities, for example, we find that one of the similarities between uh, a social entrepreneurial type of approach and one that's um, um, maybe a more standard approach, is that you can have a very meaningful job, but it can still be exhausting, right? And oftentimes, the more meaning it has, the more you pour yourself into it, right? Which we've been finding, actually, a lot of the companies we've been working with in the midst of this challenge uh, that we've been experiencing uh, uh, throughout a global uh, pandemic, but also through the economic changes we've been experiencing, is oftentimes the ones that have a lot of meaning in their work, because they feel that there's, it's an infinite need um, on that on that side of it. Um, so they keep pouring themselves into it without necessarily doing something for themselves, right? It's part of the reason we see obesity, <clears throat> obesity rates higher for nurses um, uh, than the general populations because they're caring so much for the patients, oftentimes they're not thinking about themselves. So what we do is we go into these places that have very meaningful outcomes for the world, and I start with them. Here's some things you can do for yourself to raise your levels of gratitude, deepen your social bonds, um, you know, exercise those types of things that allow them to actually do that 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 habit, uh, that, do that work more more importantly uh, or better. But on that point, let me just say a real quick yeah. story. You just made me think of, which is, um, I got to work. Um, for the executive branch uh, in the previous administration, um, I was so excited about it. It was a building right next to the White House, right? So I felt like I was going to Washington. I practiced my talk over and over again. It was a building next to it, um, an executive building. It was all these leaders of these different committees, right? And I came in and started speaking. And about 10 minutes in my talk, this woman raised her hand. She's like, I think you're really funny and engaging and enter or entertaining, but I can't use any of this at work. And I just stopped the talk, right? And she's like, I can't use any of this work because I work in the Human Atrocities Commission. And my job is to catalog all the terrible things that happen to women in the world. So I can't come in being really smiley and telling my team to be really happy when we're doing this. Then she told me that she had two of the members of her team um, that uh, attempted suicide. And she can't keep people on her team because they keep burning out and going to do other work that's maybe less meaningful, but also less demanding, right? And she said when she'd sit next to a pool with her daughter um, uh, at night, she'd feel guilty feeling happiness sitting next to her daughter. What I think I wanted to tell her is what I think a friend would have wanted to, would have wanted to tell her, which is that you have to find a way of finding joy in the work that you're doing and in your life if you want to sustain keeping doing those meaningful actions to the world, right? That optimism, gratitude, celebrating any of the wins you got allows us to actually solve more of those traumas as we move forward. So it's a shift in mindset that we oftentimes have to make with groups that are meaning focused is that they actually have to create um, a positive change for themselves first to be able to sustain that because happiness isn't pleasure, it's the joy we feel moving towards our potential. Is that your definition of happiness? 
That's the one I use because um, I think pleasure, when we pursue it, we just get on this treadmill, it's called hedonic treadmill, where you keep going and going and it has less results, like taking the same drug over and over again. So you need more of it and then eventually it doesn't work. So we get jaded with life or with that job because mm-hmm. we're not getting pleasure from it. But if happiness isn't pleasure, it's the joy you feel moving towards your potential. That joy you can feel even when life is not pleasurable, working in a difficult job, working in the midst of poverty, working to support a world that's going through a pandemic or economic crisis. We are not going to be smiling and like uh, feel pleasure all the time, but we can feel joy as our work moves us towards a better place. And that joy becomes the fuel for allowing us to create a better world. Now, this growth, um, this sustaining this happiness, uh, I'll give you a story. I, if you listen to the show, you'll know I'll talk about surfing. I was coming back from my day on the waves. This is uh, on, on Friday. And I see a, a, a father playing with his little girl. And she's got to be two years old. And she built her first sandcastle. And she thought it was the funniest thing. She was laughing so hard. And I just looked at my friend and just started laughing like that little thing gave her joy. So the point I'm trying to make is this. I feel like as we grow older, like our our bar for happiness always is, is going up and up and up. How do you sustain uh, happiness through, like you said, through that growth? Um, so I think it's about reversing that formula that we've been using about what creates happiness and success, right? What I think gets us through school, we're taught it. And then we import it into our working lives is that if I work harder right now, I'm going to be more successful and then I'll feel happier, right? So once I put this Lego set together, then I'll feel happier. Once I get this good grade, think how happy, I mean, once I graduate, think how happy I'll be. Once I have, I mean, once I have a job now, once we hit our targets, once we're working, once we're creating change, not for a thousand people, but for 10,000 people, think how happy I'll be. Um, or once I get married, think how happy I'll be. <laughs> Remember that one where you're like, oh, yeah, once I find this person that I want to be with, then I'll feel happier. In each one of those moments in our lives, uh, we keep thinking happiness will exist on the opposite side of success. Um, the problem is every time your brain has a success, we change the goalpost of what success looks like, right? Um, so if you build a, a, a sandcastle, that's not it for the rest of your life. I don't ask you now, like, are you successful? You're like, yeah, I made a sandcastle when I was four. <laughs> what else do I need to do, right? We want to see our success rate keep rising. That's adaptive. What, where we get tripped up is that we keep thinking happiness will exist on the opposite side of success. My son puts Legos together. He's a six-year-old. Um, he has much more fun putting the Legos together. Once he builds it, he doesn't really play with it at all, right? But he keeps thinking, I'm going to be so happy when I, I, I do it. And then he doesn't sometimes... If, he, if that if happiness was only on the other side of it, he would miss all the happiness. I think the same tr- thing is true within our, our working lives as well. I think if we shift our focus to, I will be happy when the pandemic's over. I will be happy when I reach this point. I'll be happy when I have this many followers or sold this many things or this many people listen to me, then I'll feel happier. That formula always backfires when we study it. And we push happiness over the cognitive horizon. What we really need to do is find that if we can create greater levels of happiness through Gratitude for the present, optimism for the future, social connection, those deeper social bonds, meaning in the work. And when we perceive that, it actually raises our success rates on the backside of it. So what I'd say is I'm not seeking out like mountaintop happiness experiences all the time. That would be a terrible existence as a happiness researcher. What I'm looking for is how do I actually uh, lower the, uh, like shorten the troughs in my life and find a way of, uh, of sustaining those places where I feel gratitude, connection, and meaning in my life. 
do you ever have like one-on-ones with people who are depressed and if you do like what what is your advice to them like they say you know sean i really i get what you're saying but i really just can't can't put that into my daily life right now i'm i'm that's how i feel like what advice would you give to people maybe listening this that are going through a really hard time well we know a lot of people probably listening to this are you know um Depends on who you ask, but 20 to 30% of, you know, some of the groups I'm talking to have been through depression or are going through depression. Mm. I went through two years of depression while I was at Harvard at the Divinity School for getting into positive psychology. Positive psychology was one of the ways that pulled me out of depression because I started having to create a routine out of these habits within my life. So what I would say is that I, what I learned at Harvard studying it, but also experiencing it is the depression is not the end of the story, although it feels like it in the middle of it. Um, for me, it was the loss of joy as we move towards our potential. Differentiating happiness, uh, depression and unhappiness. Um, unhappiness is actually good when we study it. Unhappiness uh, fuels uh, fuels us because it tells us the world is being racist or, or unjust. It tells us when we're lonely and we need to reach out to people, right? It tells us when we're in the wrong job. That type of unhappiness could be great. Um, what we're fighting so hard against is apathy, which is the loss of joy as we move towards our potential, where we don't think joy is possible and we don't think growth is possible. And that's what I felt in the midst of depression. What pulled me out of it, the two most valuable things, one is I had to start creating a schedule of these positives. Um, so uh, I got earlier this year, I, I got the opportunity to work with NASA and I asked them, um, as a return question, like we're dealing with social distancing, right? And creating happiness and social connection is so important. So how do you deal with social distancing when you're miles from earth? And they said, one of the very first things we had to learn with astronauts is we had to keep a strict routine. And on that routine, we had daily habits that were positive. Like while they brush their teeth, they think of things that they're grateful for. That simple routine, give them something for their brain to look forward to, but it changes how they scan the world. I had to do it create a schedule because I didn't feel like doing those positive habits because I didn't think growth was possible. So creating a schedule out of those habits was important. The second was I had to let people in. Um, I, 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 my first book was on happiness advantage, which was about how we change your individual habits that raises your levels of happiness and that raises your individual outcomes. What I'm passionate about right now, and it aligns so well with uh, real leaders and with social entrepreneurs is that, and businesses, is that uh, I wrote this book called Big Potential, which was about all this research that we've been doing ever since, where we realized that those choices actually impact all of these people within the ecosystem around you. And that if you actually want to choose happiness, you actually have to create an interconnected approach to it. Um, so for example, the, if you look at a hill, you need to climb in front of you. If you look at that hill by yourself, these two researchers out in Virginia found, if you look at a hill by yourself, your brain shows you a hill in your visual cortex that's 20% steeper than the hill you see when you view that hill standing next to someone who's gonna climb it with you. So I had, so the geometry of the challenges in our life are in flux based upon whether or not you think you're alone or with other people. So in the middle of depression, I had to, I reached out to eight of my closest friends and family, told them I was going through depression and I needed their help. What I did was deputize them to actually be part of that ecosystem. And suddenly they would tell me things that were going on in their life. Instead of trying to light up individually and randomly in the dark, we were lighting up together. And that's what pulled me out of depression is why I do the work that I do now. And it shows us that not only do we need to create positive habits, but we need to do it with one another. So we all are human and we all like to trick our minds. Like you mentioned, uh, we perceive the hill as being 20% more steeper than it actually is. What are some other habits 
like you you refer to with the astronauts brushing their teeth, thinking of positive thoughts in the morning. What are some habits that people can apply to their daily lives today to almost trick their brain into being happy? Yeah, so it's even I would say it's even stronger than tricking it because what we found is we assumed your happiness was just your genes and your environment because that's what we assumed your potential was. And what we found is that people add in these two-minute positive habits to their day, like brushing their teeth, it turns out that their levels of happiness rise above their genetic set point and the environmental constraints. So you could actually raise your levels of happiness above what you were born. Genes set the initial baseline, but we could actually move up. I actually got to speak to the former U.S. Surgeon General, and he said, you know, when you look at this room, everyone in this room has genes for teeth that should rot out by age 15 in a high-sugar society. That's what it is to be human if you're your genes, right? But we found a way to get everyone to create a habit of brushing their teeth every day, and that 30 to 45 mm -hmm. seconds transforms what it means to be human. So what I'd say, we know five of those things. Um, there's more. There's a lot more. But the five that I've studied are um, we get people to scan for three new things that they're grateful for at the same time every day. So your brain knows it's coming the next day. So your brain basically builds a background app scanning the world for three things you're grateful for for the next day. So if you create a pattern for long enough, your brain basically starts to passively scan the world for the positives. It takes people who are genetic low-level pessimists and raises them to low levels of optimists in just a six-week period of time. And if you keep it going, it sustains. So gratitude, three new things you're grateful for. If you journal about a positive experience each day, so you think about a single positive experience and on a notepad next to your bed, or I do in a blank Word document or a Word document I keep, and I write down every detail I can remember about that positive experience for just two minutes. Because if I do it for longer than two minutes, then I never do it because I'm like, this is going to take forever. So two minutes, every detail you can remember about one experience. It only takes one node of meaning in your life for your brain to judge that day is meaningful, right? And so what happens is your brain connects the dots for you and you start seeing this trajectory of meaning running throughout your life that was already there that your brain wasn't perceiving. So journaling, 15 minutes of fun, mindful cardio activity is the equivalent of taking an antidepressant for the first six months, but for the next two years has a 30% lower relapse rate. Not a repudiation of antidepressants at all. It's an indication of why exercise was valuable. It's a starter drug. When we study people that exercise, they start making entire constellations of positive habits because what they're learning is that their behavior matters. Um, and the final one that we've, oh, we've got people to two minutes of meditation, just watching your breath go in and out, raises accuracy rates by 10%, raises happiness, lowers your levels of stress. And my last one is my favorite. If there's one thing I would want people to do, um, especially now, we were studying this before we had to do things virtually and you know social distancing. Um, we got people initially at Facebook, and now we've done this worldwide, their very first work routine when they came into work was to write a two-minute positive email praising or thanking someone in their life. Um, for some reason, we found text messages work better. We don't know why, but text message or email two minutes praising or thanking someone in your life, and you pick a new person each day for 21 days in a row. Um, day eight, everyone runs out. Um, if you're feeling socially isolated, usually it's round three. Um, but then the important part starts to come in. Um, you have to scan for that mentor who got you that job or that friend you haven't talked to in four years, or that ex from high school who just had a baby, or that uh, the soccer coach for your kid who you never really talked to, or that person on your team you never really talked to, right? And suddenly you realize there's actually an entire ecosystem around you. You write to them, you meaningfully activate them. They sometimes write back, but now they're lighting up on your mental map of social connection. That two minutes a day for 21 days in a row, we found raises you to the top quartile of social connection worldwide. And social connection is the greatest predictor of your long-term happiness, long-term levels of success, 
And um, we found out social connection is as predictive of how long you'll end up living as obesity, high blood pressure, or smoking. So Sean, all of these habits, these daily things that you can do, the problem I see is I only know a handful of people that are disciplined enough to sustain these habits. Uh, how long does it take to form a habit? And what are some things that you've done uh, to sustain this habitual treatment of positive thinking? So it's such a great question. Um, so a, a couple ways. I, I absolutely agree with you. It actually requires discipline on the, on the front side of it, which is why I actually push these habits. I only studied these habits in short form, right? We know if we can get you to meditate on a mountainside for 80 days, we can see changes to the neural pathways in your brain. I just, you do that, you're going to lose your job, right? Um, so what we got interested in is, could we do something that somebody could append to their day? Um, so I think there's a couple of things that make this easier. One is it has to be routine. So for the astronauts, they do it. They think of the gratitude while they brush their teeth. So they know every time they're brushing their teeth, I've got to be doing this, right? So it's not like they have to expend mental resources to think, oh, yeah, I've got to do that. Make sure it's on my calendar. They've got to think about these things, right? Some people put calendar um, uh, invites for being able to do that. I've never been able to do it because I can only, I haven't figured out how to do two minutes versus 30 to 45 minutes or 15 minute increments. But people actually schedule it in, which would be, it, it seems to work really well for those individuals. Mm -hmm. So creating a system where you're always doing it in the same place at the same time dramatically decreases the activation energy necessary to, to start that task. Um, if you do it for 21 days, that's why we're getting people, hoping people get to that level. We, we've learned this from Alcoholics Anonymous. If we can get people to that 21 days, we actually have a tendency of making it easier to make, it's easier to go from day 21 to 22 than it is to go from day seven to day, day eight, right? So at day 21, you're close to getting this as a normal pattern within your life. Um, what I found is in, in August of this year, I, um, and the reason, and part of the reason I'm standing up while, while doing this is uh, I had to go through back surgery. Um, and, um, I, uh, so I just had it, uh, just three weeks ago and, you know, I was going through so much pain and I'd wake up and want the day to be over. And I'm a positive psychology researcher. So I could feel depression coming back in and knocking and I had to do those positive habits and I did the gratitude ones and I'd write the two minute text message praising or thanking people and uh, th they were my friends so that I would have some sort of inbound positive uh, support that was coming in in the midst of it because I could feel like things were so different. Like when people exercise and then they stop, they don't feel as good. And that's what drives them back into the exercise sometimes. That I think is, is what we need to have happen with positive habits. We want to see, we want to get people to the point where they see how powerful this is so that they would, they wouldn't even think about not not doing it, like brushing your teeth. Like we've done that for decades and we're not like, well, okay, I'm done with that. I'm so bored brushing my teeth. I'm out, right? You do that, you get cavities. What we're finding is it feels weird to not brush your teeth for two days. We want the same feeling around gratitude and optimism, social connection, so that it become a part of who we are. We wouldn't even think about doing work without doing those positive things. What I'm interested in in terms of habitual like rituals and doing things to make yourself better is uh, oftentimes we feel like we're in control and we're in control of our own lives. We stick to our schedule. We reach out to people in a certain time. But, you know, you mentioned insurance. There's a reason insurance is there because things do come up in your life. Like what is the role of of an understanding that we're we might not be in control? Many people in religion do feel this way. Everything happens for a reason. Right. We hear this all the time or God is in control. What is your perspective or your take on religion and, and rele releasing your control 
of uh, things, bad things that happen to you, I guess? Um, well, that's a huge question, actually. Uh, let me answer it actually from the scientific yes. side, and then I'll, I'll just briefly from, from the religious side. But the, from the scientific side, it's called uh, locus of control. So locus just meaning center. So if somebody has an internal locus of control, they believe their behavior will change the external world, right? So I believe that if I work hard at tennis, I will get better at tennis, tennis and then I'm going to win the game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, internal locus of control highly correlates with high levels of success. My guess is everyone listening to this has extremely high levels of internal locus of control. We also know high internal locus of control highly correlates with depression. And the reason for that is if we think we can control everything, at some point we realize that's actually not the truth, right? And then if there are negative things that are going on in our life, it's now our, our fault that these things are going on. I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not doing good enough. I'm not working hard enough. I'm not a good enough dad. I'm not a good enough parent. My business isn't doing well enough. My book is not doing well enough, whatever it is. What we find is high internal locus of control. If it gets too high, it actually correlates with these things to depress um, not only our mood, but our success outcomes. External locus of control, if you get too far the other direction, people don't change, right? They don't do any behavioral habits. It's actually pretty close to pessimism because pessimists don't believe that their behavior is going to have an impact on their long-term outcome, right? What what I think we are looking for um, is rational optimism, which doesn't start with rose-colored glasses. It starts with a realistic assessment of the present but maintains the belief that eventually my behavior will have an impact if linked to other people. So it doesn't mean that impact is going to happen immediately. It doesn't specify that it's going to be exactly the outcome I want, but that my behavior will have an impact if linked to other people. I like that because what it does is it allows us to realistically assess that there's some things in our control, some things out of our control, but if I act within that environment, it will have some impact on some outcomes. Um, we know inaction goes the opposite way, right? Um, when people's levels of happiness drop dramatically when they don't get to, to, to work, uh, or don't, they don't feel like they're making a meaningful impact upon the world. That's actually loneliness. Loneliness is not the lack of people. It's the lack of meaning in the relationships that we have with people. Um, from the religious side, I think it's fascinating because you get all different types of uh, people's religious beliefs. You have some that God controls everything, so it's out of my control. So, you know, God willing, this is going to happen, but I'm not going to act on this, right? You get other belief systems where, you know, it's all about your actions within that environment, right? A social justice type of one that you need to be acting all the time. And when we feel like we're acting alone, we realize that the world is so much bigger, right? So if you believe God does everything and then bad things happen, then you're in a challenging position if you believe in a loving God that allows these bad things to happen, right? So I think it becomes complicated about where people actually end up. I, I believe that, you know, we're, uh, we, we have a, a, a co-creative role to play, right? That there are things that I can do, but there are also things that are outside of my control. And that that shapes the way that I view religion or, or a religious text. Interesting. So I, I think you're a great example of this as well, because um, for people listening to this, like if you search Sean on, on YouTube, like you'll see he's got millions and millions of views. The reason I bring this up is social media now is ingrained in the youth of our society. Uh, you see many people trying to be influencers, trying to start their own podcast, trying to do things for that external validation for you yourself. Starting off with that TED Talk, maybe, I don't know when that essentially was released, but for you yourself, Sean, how did that impact you and your perspective on social media's influence on today's younger generation's happiness? It's a great and another complicated question. I would say that technology allowed 
the message that I wanted to share with the world get out way more than I ever would. I remember going to a talk early on when the TED Talk came out, which I think was 2010. And I spoke to like 200 people in the room. And when I got finished with the talk, I looked at the TED Talk and it was like, I don't remember, it was in the thousands of people who had watched it, right? Um, uh, during that same hour. Um, and I got hooked on watching the numbers go up and go up right. and go up. And, and then, um, and so, I, I'm, I feel like I, uh, I'm kind of both in the sense that technology um, is the reason positive psychology got out so much and, uh, and that I, I was able to share this message. It allowed me to do the work that I'm doing, and I'm so grateful for it. Um, social media, I've, uh, I'm, I have a, a love-hate relationship with, and I'm actually uh, in, in a short-term divorce with it right now. Um, I've seen it create pot incredible changes in people's lives. I think people, it connects people who are lonely who need to know that they're not, they're not the only ones going up that hill. Um, I think that there's so much noise out there. If there's going to be so much noise, I'd want it to be more positive noise, right? Um, I love it when people take over other people's hashtags that was negative originally and make it into something positive. I love that stuff. Um, I felt like for me, um, the and this is what we see in the research, the more people spend, uh, especially younger populations, the longer that they spend on social media, as you know, their loneliness and depression rates rise. So we know a massive use of it we already know scientifically creates a negative impact. Um, for me, I felt like in order to get into some of the positive, I was having to wade through so much negative. It, it, uh, I was getting diminishing returns on it. So um, in, uh, in August of the year, this year, when I was going through the back surgery and I was having to really rally my you know, positive responses, I actually shut uh, social media off my phone. I don't know if that's going to go on forever because I think we need voices that are positive, right? We need incredible podcasts. We need people doing these messages. We need things like TED Talks. We need technology getting it out there. We can't all do that, that divorce. But for me, I needed a break from it um, because I found myself trolling myself in my own brain, thinking about what people would say instead of focusing on the local changes that I knew I had more power over. Interesting. I, I see. I try to delete my Instagram just during the week because I feel like I get like a little monkey brain, you know, like yeah. it just I can't focus on a lot of different things. And like I, I was curious, like if you knew like the answer to this, like what is the science behind what's going on in my brain in terms of the dopamine levels that are going on? And how does that impact my, you know, on court performance of, of having a podcast? Um, so the, the uh, social dilemma, it's great. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix. Um, I've only seen part of it at this point, um, but it's fascinating. They go through some of the designers of social media um, and they talk about how they actually uh, time when they intervene within your life. So you get that dopamine release, so you get it hooked on it. And they make the, the joke, uh, they, they make the connection that there's only two industries that we use the word users on and it's, you know, drug use and, and technology. Right. Um, so, you know, people get hooked on video games because they know right when they're supposed to show you that you're making progress within your life. And it's easy to see progress. If I see that I got a couple hearts or a couple people like me and I can quantify that. What I found was that it was backfiring because, um, no matter how many likes I got, I would then use that to compare with other people to determine whether or not that was valuable. And comparison is the, you know, comparison's the thief of happiness. That's not my quote, that's somebody else. I love that because I found that, you know, if I get, you know, you know, 20 million views on a TED talk, I look and there's a cat video with like, you know, 400 million views, you know, right? And so like, or I'll put up some, a picture of my kid that I think is really cute and I'll get like two likes and I have lots more friends than that. And I'm like, I guess my kid's not that cute, right? So I was actually... It was interfering with uh, the happiness I felt with, within my life. I think it's crucial to people's businesses. 
I don't want to dump on social media at all. I think we need some champions to, to transform technology. Uh, but for me and where I'm at in my life right now, one of the greatest things uh, in terms of my happiness I've done is I, I got off social media this year. That, yeah, it's, that's tough to do. And I'm, I commend you for that. I think I might have to follow you in, the, in your footsteps there. Uh, I was interested in another story that I heard about you, you talk about. Uh, and that was, I think it was Venezuela or some, uh, you know, the second or third world country you visited. Now, we, like I mentioned before, interview a lot of companies working in the, you know, on the grounds, helping out these people. Um, and happiness has come up about this, although it is raising the income levels of a lot of these workers. Um, happiness is something that we don't measure in the GDP. Uh, what's like your experience with working with uh, people in third world countries? What have you learned and maybe what can we apply here in the United States? I think we have a, an idea that the external world is a good predictor of happiness. So if I'm working with Harvard students versus kids in Soweto, South Africa, working in a school with almost no books and dirt floors, we know who's happier. And when we measure it, that's not the case at all. Um, I, I, that was one of my biggest experiences. We were talking about Young Presidents Organization before coming on. Um, I got uh, uh, Salim Duji from South Africa, took me out to Soweto, South Africa, um, when I went out there to speak to YPO. And, uh, took me to a, a school that served a shanty town, and these kids came running up, and they were so happy and positive. And you know, one of the things I said was, uh, you know, who here likes doing schoolwork? I didn't know how to interact with kids. I was like, who who who, who likes doing schoolwork? Assuming they'd be like, oh no, and they like raised their hands, and they were so excited. Um, and I went on to something else because I was screwing me up. <laughs> and Salim told me afterwards, you know, they, the reason they feel feel this is because uh, they said that is because a lot of their parents didn't get the opportunity to even go to school. So of course they're excited about school. I flew back to Harvard, sat in this dining hall with vaulted wooden ceilings and Tiffany stained glass, listening to these students that are having this, you know, hundred, you know, six figure uh, education, playing misery poker, competing to see who was the most miserable based on how much score they had and how many papers they had and how much they had not slept. So it's about the mindset about that world. And so what I learned and had pounded into me from the beginning was this breakdown of this elitist idea that happiness was preserved for the rich and that only the rich and the, you know, um, I, I have to tell you, I, I spoke to one large organization. They had me come in and speak their leadership and I was so excited. And they were like, we love this. This is who we are. This is great. And I was like, great. I want to talk to the store floors. And they were like, um, no, we can't do that. You know, a lot of them are part-time workers. They're not really paid that much, frankly. Um, they don't get much training. They come in and out. Some of them have family members in jail. We can't really talk about happiness. It was as if happiness was preserved for the wealthy leaders um, and not for everyone. And yet when we research it, what we're finding is I kept learning about happiness when I would go into Venezuela or go into Soweto, South Africa, when I go into these impoverished places and I'd find people that farmers who lost their lands in Zimbabwe who could still have high levels of happiness and optimism if they had deep social connection. And I work with extremely rich bankers and celebrities who have everything, but they can't go into Starbucks to get a coffee because they, uh, you know, everyone wants them to do an impersonation or to sign something. So they sit in their beautiful Hollywood homes alone, right? So it's about social connection and meaning and optimism and gratitude, which are actually free and are is separate from the environment or the environment around us. That being said, I think what we should use happiness for as the fuel for making us a better world. That's not, you know, all right, great, let's keep the status quo. 
I think we need more people being able to create optimism and social connection so that they can do more of those socially entrepreneurial ideas to make this a better world, right? Or that they can um, uh, make this a better environment for all of us and break down structural racism or break down income inequality that, that severs us from one another. So, and I know you've got big plans for this, and I want you to share that just a little bit later. I, I want to stick on this idea of wealth inequality and happiness. Uh, affluenza is something I've heard about. P- kill children coming out very affluent. They have everything, and they're severely depressed. Many of them commit suicide. Um, I think it's like adult white males above 65 or between 56 and 65 at the highest rate of suicide as well. Um, my grandfather was certainly one of them. And... It's a big problem. It's really interesting. Um, now, in terms of parenting uh, and your, your overall vision of how happiness can be instilled uh, into these communities, in every community, and we need to be a happier society, how does one practice that as a parent? That's a great question. I have a six-year-old and two-year-old, so I'm learning this real time. So I nice. think I'll have a different answer 10 years from now when my son's uh, you know, at, at mid-teens. Um, but for now, I just had a conversation with my wife yesterday. Her name is Michelle Geelan. She's also a happiness researcher. So we, get, we love talking about these ideas. And one of the things I told her was, I felt like that there was a point in my life where um, uh, I can keep trying to upgrade my life I love upgrading. When I play video games, I like to build new armor and build new things to get stronger and stronger, right? Like when I build a business, I like it to grow and grow and impact more people. And I felt like in my own life that the anything I would do to upgrade um, had such a diminishing return because I felt like my life is good. If it's all about me, there's a glass ceiling on my happiness if it's all about me. Now I can try and upgrade other people's lives and suddenly that gets much more exciting again. I think affluenza occurs when we get stuck and that ceiling and don't feel like we we feel any joy moving towards our potential because we cap out because we're like, I can't get any better. There's only one way to go. And we as our humans, our, our brains hate the lack of growth, right? The happiness is a joy you feel moving towards your potential. If you feel like you're there's only one direction to go, then we we feel that affluence that people are talking about. So I think as parents, one of the things we really want to do is that we can offer lots to our children, but that what makes things really exciting is progression, right? So like, I, I bet we could afford whatever the nicest Lego is, but it's so much nicer to go from these small Legos. And then occasionally, you know, when Christmas comes, maybe you get one of those medium sized Legos or a lot, right? So that there's like something that they're looking forward to that they have to earn by doing the schoolwork, right? So that they are participatory earning this thing that shows that there's growth. And then what we want to teach them early on is that it's not just about you. Look how much happier it was when you did that Lego with your friend or gave that Lego to someone who's never gotten a Lego before. And suddenly mm-hmm. there's access to happiness you didn't think was possible. So one of the things we practice as a family, with we're still doing virtual school with our six-year-old son. And we start each day with a gratitude jar. And we write down one thing that we each write, my wife, I, uh, my son, write down one thing that was our favorite part about the day before. So we have to scan for something we're grateful for. Um, then we compete to see who has the best one. My son always wins, right? And we put that into this glass jar and we keep it. But then what we're doing is we're not only scanning for it, but we're, uh, we're reading back through them. So we keep remembering these things that occurred a couple of weeks ago. Every time we've done it and read through the whole jar, eight, and you know, 70%, 80%, I don't know the exact percentage, the majority of them I'd forgotten about. I was like, oh, yeah, remember when that happened? That was amazing. But I can tell you every fire I need to put out my inbox right now, like all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so our brain has access to the, the fires. Unless as parents or as students, 
we're scanning for the things we're grateful for, our brain will just go to threat detection. So I think it's preventative gratitude that allows us to see meaning that becomes the social bonds, the social narrative for our family, and then not tapping out at um, upgrading your life, but trying to find a way of helping other people. Interesting. Interesting. Now, how do you think like management has failed society in terms of business overall happiness? And is there a way to measure happiness in the workforce? Um, workplace? I, yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, where management fails is oftentimes we think it's, you know, it's that's on you to figure out your happiness. Right. And we talked about that Hill study where, uh, uh, the hills actually become steeper when uh, we think we're climbing that alone as opposed to with a manager, with an advisor, with mm-hmm. a teammate, right? right. Um, I, I remember uh, I came into one organization uh, to talk about creating levels of happiness. And it was a sales organization. And uh, one of the comments that one of the guys said was, um, he's like, I don't understand why we're having a talk on happiness. That's that's the, uh, or on engagement. We pay people to be engaged, right? <laughs> like this idea that like, I'm paying you to be engaged is up to you to do what you need to do to get there. That person's a manager. They're a leader. So this person is actually not doing his job if he's not actually interested in someone's well-being or happiness or gratitude or meaning because those are crucial to their success, their job success. We know the greatest competitive advantage in the modern economy is a positive, engaged brain. So if you're a manager and you don't care if your, your employees are positive or engaged, then you're failing not only your team, you're failing to do what you're doing as a manager. So I think it's getting past some of these mental blocks about you, you be you and you do you to this idea that I'm going to model as a leader making these positive changes, right? Um, uh, With that Harvard Business Review article we wrote about uh, that hospital system, the president of the hospital system, Jordan Voigt, actually came to the beginning of each of the departments going through that orange frog training because what they wanted to do, he wanted to do was for five minutes, he wanted to impress upon them hey, this is crucial to how we're going to improve your lives, the lives of the people that come in this hospital and our bottom line. But also, here are the habits that I've started doing. I do these every day, and this is making a huge impact. So when you hear that from leadership, they're modeling it. It's not a flavor of the month type of idea, um, but it also shifts the conversation towards the positive, giving people license to do that. So um, I think that we need to be measuring how much we're impacting positive change. I think as leaders, we need to be modeling it and starting doing those habits ourselves. Um, one last example, we did a study uh, with Training Magazine and we found that uh, we, H- we asked HR managers how much you think you could change other people, you know? And part of their job was looking at training and learning and development, right? And it was depressingly low how much they thought they could actually change somebody. Then we got them for just two weeks to do pick up one of three positive habits. So they just did one positive habit for two weeks, we measured them, their levels of happiness rose, we already knew that was going to happen, optimism rose, but then we asked them the question again, and their belief that people could change rose dramatically. Hmm. So I think as leaders, we've got to be doing this so we recognize how much change is possible. I, I want to stay on that, actually. That's really interesting me, to me, because I got asked that question in a couple months ago. Kevin, do you think people change? And I said with, without hesitation, yeah, of course, I think people can change. But the the answer really wasn't that easy. I mean, the, the debate on the opposite side was a very strong debate about why people change. So, Sean, do you think people change? I do. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, there's no question in my mind that we change because uh, we've watched people and we look at people who continually pe- test pessimist and then they apply a 45 second disruptor like gratitude habits. And we see that they break the tyranny of genes and environment over their trajectory of optimism. 
We know that people get into car accidents at 50 who have lived selfish, negative lives. That's who they were. They were cynical. They get in a car accident. They realize they could have died, and they suddenly become altruistic and optimistic. That's a trauma that created a lifetime. So what I would ask people that don't believe change is possible, I would, you know, if you could do it in a room, I don't know how you do this, but uh, what I would want to do to someone who says that is be like, so who in here in this room uh, went through depression and got over it, right? That's massive change. Mm-hmm. Who here, you know, like uh, 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 experienced a period of extremely low levels of happiness within their life and doesn't feel that now, right? You can see that there are changes that have occurred from previous states. So I can stay in a trough for a longer period of time, or we can actually recognize that change is possible. What I find fascinating about this research is how these small changes actually create long-term impacts for people. Like gratitude exercises is fundamental to how astronauts set up their day because they know that it's crucial to the the performance and the, their effectiveness level. So um, yeah, I've seen it within my life. I went through two years of depression and I'm not depressed now. So we know change is possible. Sean, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I can't believe it's already 52 minutes in this episode. I feel like we just got started now. We've talked about a lot, uh, talked about management, gratitude, um, how to overcome certain situations, uh, examples of good leaders exemplifying them doing these practices uh, to their employees to to catalyze that change among workplaces across the uh, you know across the world. So, uh, Sean Anker, uh, let's bring this home. The last question I have for you today is: What is your definition of a real leader? Um, I think a real leader is someone who um, is interested in more than just their own level of success and happiness that they're able to model and to encourage and, and lead people towards not just better outcomes, because that helps the leader, but also that they're better by being in relationship with you. I remember I heard a consultant once say, um, this is Caroline Sammy, she said, um, which one of these, uh, tell me the charismatic response. Uh, uh, the subway system is shut down in New York and you've got your office there. What would a charismatic leader say? And most people are like, We'll rally together. We'll create some sort of, you know, change. I'll make sure everyone gets taxi cabs. I'm going to do all this stuff. And what she said was, you know, I think one of the most charismatic leaders is one that's like, how are you going to get home today? Like, meaning that they cared about what the other person was dealing with, not just about their own response. And so I think real leaders are able to not only get their jobs done, but they care about where others are going on that journey so that we're not just working together. We're better because we work together. Beautifully put, Sean. This has been an overall positive episode today. I'm really excited that you came on here. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning into the Real Leaders Podcast today. For Sean Anker, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, be interested in others' success, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Sean Anker. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you didn't know by now, I'll tell you again, all of these episodes are streamed live on our Crowdcast and on our LinkedIn channel. All you got to do is one, click the link in the description or two, go online to realleaders.com podcast live events and you can RSVP for one of many upcoming episodes with Real Leaders. Second, would love it if you all could leave us a review. It mean the world to me. And it help me understand what you guys like about the show and how we can find more guests 
whether it's like Sean or Sam or Nicole, whoever, let us know. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts by scrolling down all the way to the bottom and writing a review. With that being said, just want to appreciate you for being here. Go out there, achieve your potential, and always, folks, keep it real.